Well, good morning, choir. You sounded good. Take your Bibles and turn again with me to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, the first half of that chapter today. We are all addicted to ourselves. We just, we just naturally see everything uh, our own way. What do I like? Uh, what do I want? How do I want to do things? Even when we think about other people, it seems like by nature we are just thinking, how do they affect me? Right? That's just default. In our marriages, you know, how does she make me feel? How does he make me feel? Instead of how do I make her, him feel? Or the <clears throat> all-important marriage question, what's it like to be married to me? Can we put ourselves in the other person's shoes? And just how supernatural is that really? We bring the same attitudes naturally to church. Do, do I like that person? Do I like them? Do I want to be with them? Thank you for voting yes this morning. We are together. We, we, we know that's important. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is, as we know, commonly known as the love chapter. It, it was actually not written to be read at weddings. It was actually written to a church that was in substantial conflict, that had, had a lot of problems. And I'd say even that the, the Corinthian church kind of did us all a favor by doing enough wrong relationally that Paul would essentially write a whole long, you know, 16-chapter letter to us about how to, how to help us get relationships right. And if, if there's a core chapter in one sense relationally, of course, this would be it. Because it talks about love. It's talking about a whole new way of, of thinking so that we can become selfless. Unbelievably hard, but it is what Christ has called us to do. In chapter 12, if you've been with us, you know that it's been talking about spiritual giftedness. The Holy Spirit has specially equipped each believer with some unique ability which is meant to enable us to serve each other better or to be together with others serving God's purposes in the world. So it's all about, spiritual gifts are all about one another and it's like Paul is in, in the middle of that discussion when at the end of chapter 12, that last line says, uh, I need to talk to you about a more excellent way or a more important thing because there is something not so much more important than gifts, but that spiritual gifts must be paired with selfless love. Our spiritual gifts, our ministries have to be paired with this selfless love. So he interrupts himself or the Spirit interrupts him to say, this is what we got to know as we think about ministry, serving others or serving with others. Verse 1, 2, and 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I, give all my, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Um, it's great to have spiritual gifts. He's, he's said how important they are. But if we don't have love, then he uses this phrase like it's just all a big zero somehow. I think we all know or have experienced that you can be around someone who is very gifted and yet very annoying. That's what it's saying. Somebody who, is, who has really unique ability. In, in recent years, uh, a couple of very prominent pastors who are exceptionally gifted have, have lost their ministries because of at least a perception, I don't know them personally, of being selfish or rude or, or something like that. And it was happening in the, in the Corinthian church. So giftedness can just be annoying without love. In fact, the comparison here is to a, a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. I think this will be a very familiar uh, language to the Corinthians because the, the pagan temples, and remember that's been in the context, chapters 8 and 9 and others, that, that they were not to be going to those pagan temples, but the pagan temples were known for symbols and gongs, dong, dong, somehow it's just part of their, their pagan worship. And he says, no one wants to listen to a cymbal solo. You know, bang, bang, bang. No one wants to be around a Christian who is spiritually gifted, but frankly annoying because they are just so full of themselves somehow or over-talk everybody or whatever. It might, crash, crash, bang, bang. And, and Paul is writing to help salvage relationships that in the three- to four-year history of the church is still pretty young, but there have been people that are hurt, and he's putting his finger on the problems. You have spiritual gifts, but you don't have selfless love. So... You can, you can exercise the gifts that you think so highly of, and the first one he mentions, tongues, will become the major subject of chapter 14. The gift of tongues was simply the gift of speaking in an unlearned language, Acts chapter 2. It was an impressive display of the power of God in an era when, when uh, the church was new and the church needed God's attention getting gifts and miracles. and So you can speak in that miraculous language, tongues of men and angels. Now that's, what are the tongues of angels? This is actually the only place in Scripture it's mentioned. The three times that tongues are mentioned in, in the book of Acts, there's no mention of it being an angelic tongue. And, and perhaps it was actually just a Corinthian idea that this thing is so supernatural when someone can speak in a language they haven't learned. You know, somehow this is like, there's like the angels talking. Uh, each of these three verses have like this, this, uh, secondary illustration that's like extreme and like you can't even imagine it being so great and so even if you had that great gift but you didn't care about people it's worthless have you ever avoided a store that had exactly the right stuff but the people that worked there you just didn't want to go there this is, this is what can happen in the church family if we don't have love. The second verse is about how gifts not only can be annoying but impressive, yet meaningless without love. If you have the gifts of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. These are, first of all, three of the, the more verbal teaching-type gifts because communicating God's truth is always important, and especially in that opening stage of the church 
Paul's own gift was, at least primary gift, was certainly prophecy because God was speaking directly to Paul so he could communicate God's direct truth. Of course, in the absence of a New Testament, this is crucial. It's very important. But it says, if I have that, or then he adds another gift, if I have faith, a faith that can move mountains. This would be probably the, the gift of faith that he referred to uh, earlier in chapter 12. A special gift of, of trusting God in such a way that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So it's a miracle-working faith. No, no human, as far as we know, has ever spoken and moved a mountain, but Jesus did say if you had the faith like a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Obviously, it's not our faith that moves mountains, it's God who would move the mountain, and the God who created the mountains could move the mountains, but it, it never actually has, has happened. But another uh, kind of like, like extreme example that if hypothetically you could move mountains, but you didn't have love, then what? Then you're, well, it says it's nothing. What does it mean it's nothing? It doesn't mean that it accomplishes nothing. But it seems that it, you as a person doing it, there's no value spiritually in your life as being the one with that gift. Christians can accomplish great things and do it out of pride instead of love. Um, church stuff. Kind of like what we accuse politicians who are in public service and, yeah, you're just trying to get reelected, we say, but nothing. So it equals zero. These teaching gifts are having this amazing faith gift. So, so the gift might still have value, but the person exercising it has forfeited the value of it to himself. He gets a zero on God's scorecard. And there is a scorecard of sorts. We saw that Paul addressed this earlier in 1 Corinthians, where he said, judge nothing before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So it's picturing almost like a, a sad scenario where you could arrive in heaven and you would see what your ministry has accomplished and yet God could not say, well done, good and faithful servant. Like that's the nothing. So, so the gift was still effective. The gift was still transforming lives because that was the power of the Spirit working through your gift and, and he, he wanted to accomplish something in somebody, but yet we could, we could score the zero. So a gift could be impressive. It could be nonetheless meaningless besides annoying. A gift could be sacrificial, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor, and even, what, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Um, so if you gave your possessions to the poor, the poor would benefit. And yet, again, not you. Uh, sometimes when maybe celebrities or the very wealthy make some notable gift, they get their, their name in the news, uh, plaque, or whatever it might be, and, and we kind of, you know, judge them and suspect their motives, but don't we all kind of sprain our shoulders with whatever we think we do that's generous? <laughs> kind of like patting ourselves on the back of that. And does God shake his head in sadness when our generosity to others is actually a way of exalting ourselves? Do, do we see the contradiction there, if it's not a selflessness? 
Or even this extreme example, again, like moving mountains, you know, if I gave my body to be burned, uh, most translations have that word, uh, some, there's a single Greek letter, if you change it, it's a different word, and so some translations say, uh, so that I could boast, but I think it is the burned word. Again, I don't think that it means that anybody actually did this. There's a, I guess there's a couple examples in church history where some crazy fringe people claim to be committing suicide, throwing themselves in the flame for the cause of Christ or something, but that's just a, a fringe thing probably. So not that this ever happens, but it's like if you could do the ultimate sacrifice, you, you died for someone, but actually you didn't even care about them. Again, another, another zero, inning after inning. So, so gifts can be annoying without love. They can be impressive to others. They, they, they could be sacrificial so that you're impressing yourself. And so exercise a spiritual gift in itself can be an empty ministry unless we really care about the people we're serving with and the people we are serving. Uh, I wonder if the room was extra quiet. Again, I just I keep picturing this letter arriving in Corinth and what's it like when real people hear this because uh, it's just... Paul said, if, if I did, and so it's like Paul saying you know, that he could be that person, and Paul, I'm sure, struggled with his own motives, but, but probably people sitting there listening are going, yeah, but what he really means is me, doesn't he? So this is an opportunity to look in the mirror, and now as he comes to verses 4 through 7, that description of love is, is really like a mirror for us to look at ourselves, how do we think? How do I think that is not loving? How do I think that is not selfless? What am I calling love that is not love? Because selfless love means living radically different like Christ. So this is an opportunity to evaluate ourselves. So this, this list is not just like platitudes to be read at the next wedding. This is like what love looks like. This is love in denim, not lace. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always endures, always believes, always hopes, always perseveres. This is down-to-earth uh, descriptions of, of love. Uh, the word love here is a word you might be familiar with, agape love. That's the, the main New Testament word for, for love, uh, the love of God. The Greek language had, at that time, three words for love. Uh, that would be, we'd probably translate them all love, but the first was eros, which is uh, uh, romantic or sexual love. It's actually never used in the Bible. The second is philos, like we, the word philos, um, Philadelphia, such loving people there. But, um, Phila <laughs> sorry if you're from Philadelphia. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking sports analogies, and uh, Philadelphia fans sometimes are known for not being so brotherly loved. But brotherly love is a family love. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a friend kind of a love. It's also a good kind of a love. It's actually a God-given love as well. In fact, it was in the verses that uh, Pastor Nate read earlier, both agape and uh, phileo love were, were, are, are good loves, but when God's love is 
described. It is always this word, agape. And it's really being defined here as this selfless love. It's really putting yourself in that person's shoes. How can I benefit this person? The late Tim Keller, uh, pastor and author from New York City, wrote a very remarkable but small book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I think it actually got passed around in some study at some point. It's, it's a great little book. The Freedom, just think of the title, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And, and a key quote is this. He said, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I think he's pinpointing something here that we talk so much about self-image and we all kind of get it. You know, we have these different complexes, you could say. But he says the issue is not about are you thinking of yourself rightly, but are you thinking of yourself like all the time? That everything is like, how does this affect me? And so he's calling us to a, a radical, selfless mindset. Is, is that even possible? Glad you asked. That's what Philippians 2 was about, isn't it? When he says to the Philippians, not looking to your own interests, but each one to the interests of others. Is that even possible? I mean, can, can you have a conversation where you are really listening well? You're thinking of what's interesting to them. In your relationships, or some say attitudes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Like, this is it. This, this is going to tell us how to live selflessly, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the model of selfless love, to think about relationships like Jesus did because there was, there was no appeal in any selfless, selfish way for Christ to leave the perfectness, the glory of heaven where he had lived in this blazing perfection forever to become one of us. But as we sang just moments ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that's the model of this love. Um, this this well-known section, verses 4 through 7, um, there's, a, there's a certain rhythm to it. Some have even thought it's more poetry than pose, prose, and it, it, it is so much. The, the rhythm and the grammar, some have suggested that this, in fact, I, I attempted to read it that way, the statements occur in pairs. And that actually helps me to, to understand a little bit better because it brings kind of a, a specific contrast in each two statements where one helps you understand exactly, I think, where Paul was going with this. So love is patient, love is kind. The first two are positive descriptions of what love is. Love is patient and love is kind. Let's try to think of the connection. Patiently enduring the sinful traits of others and then showing them kindness instead of retaliation in spite of their sinfulness. This is radical stuff. Love is patient. This, we need patience in a lot of different ways to apply patience. This is relational patience. Why is that so important? Because everyone you know is a sinner. Every friend you have at open door is a sinner. 
And that person you pledged to love forever is a sinner. What were you thinking? <laughs> that uh, your options were limited. Angels don't marry, so you married a sinner. So how can we break out of that natural selfishness? Emerson Egrich's uh, book, Love and Respect, uh, talks about the crazy cycle, if any of you have, have read that one. Uh, the crazy cycle is, is bottom line when both a husband and a wife get into this cycle of selfishness and it becomes an attack. It's like your, your sin natures are clashing and, 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 and the book calls us to, to who's going to be biblical first? Who's going to be grown up enough to break out of the crazy cycle and basically to imitate Christ instead of our natural tendencies? Love is patient means you're not surprised that you are living and doing life alongside a sinner. Patient and then loving kind means that instead of reacting to them the way you believe they deserve, this person, when they're rubbing you wrong, you don't feel loving at all, you instead give them what they don't deserve. That is Christ-like love because he gave us kindness when we deserved his wrath. Love is patient. Love is kind. You see, your good friend, your best friends at Open Door, let's just say that, your best Christian friends, you can probably get along with their sin nature out of just human tolerance because they bring so much to your life, you know, that you're kind of like, eh, it's just them, it's okay. In fact, you probably don't even need to draw on the well of, of God's grace to show human tolerance to your best friends. But when there's somebody who rubs you wrong, uh, there's, there's the, the, the person in the same Bible study. There's the person who, who uh, you're, you're, in the same, you're serving the same ministry, and now, because you're so closely linked, something about them grates against you, and, and they say something critical about you, or they take credit that you deserve, or whatever it is, and now, now you're, going to, you're going to need the love of Christ who gave up everything and became man and gave us kindness where we deserved his wrath. So love is patient, love is kind. It's kind of like, a, I think, the theme or title of these other pairs uh, because it describes Christ who returned exactly the opposite of what we deserve. Peter was talking about this when he said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. And when, when Peter gets around to saying this, he has already told them, and here's how we can do that because when they hurled their insults at him, this is chapter 2 previous, when they heard, hurled their insults at him, Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. So we, we have this model, this mindset that is completely, radically different to everything in our human sinful nature. This is, this is love in, in denim. This is the hard work of letting the Spirit change the way we think about others by first changing the way we will think, period. Not selfless, selfish. Then he turns to these uh, descriptions of what love is not. So many, other, so many times we can best define something by what it isn't because it just brings some clarity. So, what is love not? Love is not proud. It is not rude. And thinking of that as a pair. Jealous of what? Not jealous of those who are given applause and then not calling attention to what I do well. So it seems about 
who gets the glory. Not jealous. Uh, the term is a term, it's an it's a emotional, passionate kind of thing. Um, but this isn't a good zeal like our song. He is jealous for me in a good sense, right? But this is the, this is the, the jealousy of bitterness, resentment. Somebody else is getting glory instead of you. Sometimes you almost can, you can just feel that in your stomach. Sometimes jealousy of somebody, if you just think about it long enough, they get, they're getting the credit or, or, or the, the, the dialogue of, a, of spouses, who, who, who gets the credit. Not jealous is paired with not boasting. So boasting is when we, we compensate that they're getting glory, so now how can I get glory? And so we try to insert ourselves sometimes into a conversation. Like they're, they're talking about this is really cool or interesting or this is what they did or so admir- admirable. And, and we're just like wishing we could get into this conversation to, to say what we did was so, so cool or interesting or, or worthy of applause. Um, love doesn't do that. Love listens really well. You can often... You can often even use that as like a, a mirror for yourself in a conversation. Am I, am I listening well? Am I taking interest in the next person? Or am I just hoping I can share my cool thing? The next term where it says love is not proud sounds just like boasting, but actually if it's paired with the next one, end of verse 4 and the start of verse 5, is not proud, is not rude. Proud Paired with rude, perhaps. So proud would be, not proud would be not trying to look good, and not rude is not making others look bad. Not trying to make myself look good while make others look bad. The term is about puffing up, making myself look good. In contrast, we sometimes try to do that by putting someone down, making them look bad. That's what rudeness is. If you move that into your kitchen and family rooms at home, it often is this, 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 this competitive thing. How, how do you make yourself in a discussion, if there's a tension, how do you make yourself look better? You, but I, but you, but I. And, and it's, it's like, I've got to elevate myself, I've got to put you down. This is very natural, right? Selfless is very unnatural. So how does that relate to this issue of is not rude? We can bring those attitudes to church because gossip is essentially rudeness towards someone who's not present. Putting someone down who's not present. So you're having a conversation with a friend and the other name comes up and you can almost like see a little sneer, a little roll of the eyes because you know them. We don't, we don't like them. Denigrating, rude towards someone not there. Someone for whom Christ died as much as he died for you. And you, If you picture Christ thinking about any of his kids, does he ever think about us with a, a sneer or a roll of the eyes? No. Or his child. You know, the name of Jesus never occurs in this whole description of, of love, but his character is never absent. It's like it, everything here just, just seeps of, of, the, of the nature of Christ 
when we're called to this. Agape, selfless love. The next pair, not self-seeking, not easily angered. So not, self-seeking is wanting my way. So self-seeking is not seeking my own way, not easily angered is uh, not reacting in anger when I don't get my way. Self-seeking is a very simple concept. Just watch some two- or three-year-olds. That's, that's life, right? My toy, my this, what you can do for me. And, uh, but so many, so many times as full-grown humans, we, we maintain that and even bring it to church. When, if you're married, you know that you can't both get your way each time. That's, there's at least two opinions. If you're part of a church, there's a lot more than two opinions. And so we won't get our way. So the issue of this next part of the pair is, are we easily angered by that when we don't get our way? What are, in fact, the, the term is, um, is not easily provoked. It's like you picture poking a bear, okay? You're the bear. Uh, so what is the trigger that brings out that anger? If you don't know, ask your spouse. Or if you have a really good friend. What do you see as my triggers? The, you know, the more you study these things, it's like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> That's a good feeling. That's the right feeling because we cannot produce that. We can only find ourselves at the foot of the cross when we're, we're seeking to live this way. No record of wrongs and not rejoicing in evil but truth. So, it's about people who have wronged you. So we're not bitter, don't keep track of things, but instead, and, and we're not enjoying bringing them up. Is your marriage or other relationships marred by the little black book syndrome? Keeping track. We, we truly cannot forget mentally. We can't forget some things. We can't, forgive and forget is not realistic. You can't forget, but you can decide that you are going to issue continual forgiveness cards and not bring stuff up based on the cross. We can keep track of, of hurts and uh, we, can, we can avoid certain people. Uh, sometimes people leave churches, this isn't the only reason at all, but because of one main person or conflict. In fact, I read it, and pastors are not immune. I read, I one time read a study that they did of pastors who left churches because of conflict. Usually they left because of six people or less. Six people or less. Keeping track of wrong. I don't know if it's a pastor's problem or the, the half dozen people. I don't know. But, but love thinks differently. Love thinks, I've been sinned against like Christ so I can forgive like Christ. I've been sinned against like Christ. All sin is against Christ. So I can only forgive like Christ. Takes time. Forgiving does not mean that a relationship is restored. That's a two-way street. Uh, forgiveness does not mean that trust is instantly established. That's a time thing. But it means that I take that first step to close the chapter of my little book. So if this is intentionally paired in ver with verse 6, does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth, the delighting in evil may be a reference to enjoying when that person that we've felt 
conflict and adversary with, we rejoice when something goes bad for them. So we keep track. So they're in our little black book already, and now something goes back for them, and our heart leaps with a tiny bit of rejoicing in evil. They get what they deserve, or karma, which is, by the way, an entirely pagan concept. That's, that's not God's justice. That's, that's our revenge. In the business world, that's normal. The competitor suffers a setback, and we pick up some accounts. In politics, we gloat when the other side takes a hit. Does our mindset really change when we come into our relationships, or does that become a pattern of gloating over others who fail? Do we, do, do we really change gears in our Christian relationships? But instead rejoices in the truth. That's a little difficult one to understand, but truth sometimes uh, can simply mean righteousness. So, so instead of rejoicing that somebody gets something bad happening to it, to actually begin to rejoice that something good happens to somebody that we struggle with. That, that's, that's completely selfless, like selfless. Let's say, like, I, I have struggled with that person, but I am rejoicing that this good thing has happened for them. Radical. In verse 7, Paul moves on from what love is not to resume what love is, actually what love does. And in a sense, he goes in his thinking from looking in the mirror to go, okay, I'm evaluating my own way of seeing people and, and I'm reflecting it. I can't, I can't be thinking the way I have been thinking. So what, what do I need to think? H how do I view others that will be radically different? Love always endures, always believes or trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Got to change the way I think about others. Uh, these four lines uh, are written in what is probably considered a chiasm. It's a little literary device. Um, if the others are pairs, it's like one line after the other are, are like parallel, saying about the same thing, right? So, uh, or, or, or opposite things. In this case, there are similar things, it seems, that are happening in four lines. The chiasm means the first and the last line of the same thing, and then the middle lines of the same thing, okay? So you might notice that. And in fact, I think our translations struggle with trying to differentiate to make four things, and maybe the, Paul just meant two things. The first and last terms are love endures and love perseveres. That's about the same thing. In other words, there is some kind of a willingness to put up with something. And the middle two lines are about believing and hoping. Those are both similarly thinking about the future. So the, the first and the last line are about the now. What, if I love someone selflessly, what am I willing to put up with? Does God give me an endurance for that which does not change? And then the middle lines are saying, but do I believe that God can change? Will I give someone the benefit of the doubt that God's at work in changing them? It's really a beautiful, uh, I think, progression. And usually the emphasis in a chiasm is the center one. So you'd be thinking about, do I believe in a good future for the people that I struggle with? And I think this is all talking about more Christians. This isn't about so much loving the world and all of that stuff. It's about, it's about our relationships. So think about some real difficult relationships as we think through this. Always endures. 
Some things you just wait out. Um, are we willing to realize there may not be significant change in our spouse? There are some things that are kind of set. And, that, and, and say, yeah, I, God's given me a, a patience about that. Is, is God patient with the things that we've been struggling with maybe for 10, 20, 40, 70 years or whatever, right? Because God is so patient with our characteristics. Endures all things. Perseveres our imperfections, and then those center two traits. Always believes. Gives the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't just, refuses to live with a cup, cup half empty view of this person because this one thing happened one time, and so now I kind of have written them off, and they are this person, and I always see them as this person because I see the good guys and the bad guys, and they got in my bad guy list, and and. Picture yourself in parenting, if you, if you, if you are a parent. Sometimes, you, you'll, as a parent, we notice that, it, that maybe a coach or, or a teacher or a boss or somebody, as our kids are growing up, doesn't really appreciate our kid, you know? Kind of sees them, kind of writes them off. Or, or sometimes we might see that our, that our child is having a hard, certain child is having a hard time making friends, and, and we're thinking about this and going, oh, but I love my kid, and, and I understand my child, and, and, and that those unique relational things that kind of makes friendships kind of hard for them, or I, I get it, but, but if, my, if the boss, if the friend, if the, if the teacher could only see what I see, you think like that? How does, do you suppose God thinks that way about us? Yes, he does. Or his kid. And so he thinks that way about us. And he, he then even anticipates, God anticipates the change he's bringing about, the transformation he's bringing about in our life. And can we begin to think about people like God thinks about people? So people that we have kind of put in a category or written off that we begin to see, wait a minute, God's at work in them. And we could just be surprised and amazed at the cool things that God does in their life. And that is a God word or a God-focused way of seeing people. Paul wrote that way to the Philippians, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you believe that for the people with whom you struggle in the body of Christ? There's a great verse to uh, pray this truth, essentially, uh, for anyone you struggle to love, or maybe it's, for a child who is maybe angry or estranged or perhaps has not put their faith in Christ or is not walking with the Lord, you, you struggle, but you, you say, God, I realize that you are still at work and you keep praying and you keep trusting God. You don't know what God's going to do maybe even after your life is, is over. But love has a vision for the future and doesn't assume that God is inactive in someone else. Assumes that God is active and then always perseveres. We're all glad God hasn't given up on us, right? And to think like God thinks. You've probably seen a saying, maybe it's one of those things from uh, you hang on your wall too, that it's not a Bible verse, but I like this one. I, I smile because you are my sister or brother. I laugh because there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you know, chapter 12 has told us 
You're part of the body. You're not getting out of it. Whether you're a finger, eye, nose, whatever. It, you are connected to the body of Christ. So what are you going to really, really need? Paul says, end of verse, chapter 12. Just stop. Let's talk about it. What you're really going to need is an incredibly Christ-like, selfless love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us to that which is impossible and unnatural to us because we did not want to live like our world with the attitudes and adversarial uh, way of relating. Instead, you called us to yourself. You reconciled you, yourself in your perfect holiness to us with all of our sin and created for us a a pattern, a, a revolutionary, radical way of relating that we can love each other completely different than the world attempts to. And that we are empowered by you, your spirit, not only to serve with our spiritual gifts, but to then do so with a, a motive that really sees life through the needs, the cares of the other person. So give us grace like you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.